I, um, I have a new watch uh, and I've, I've really been enjoying telling people about it. It tells the time, obviously, as watches do. Uh, it counts how many steps I do each day. And most importantly, it can count how many laps and how quickly uh, in a swimming pool. Uh, and this means that Jen and I can compete. Uh, she wears the watch on a Monday morning when she swims and I wear it on a Wednesday morning. This doesn't happen every uh, week, uh, and Jen's still a little bit faster than me. Uh, but give me time, uh, I'll get there. Uh, she's very competitive. Uh, just to add to the complexity of our little competition, uh, earlier in the year, I took my watch off and I left it in the mailbox. This is a Tuesday evening of Murray McPherson. Uh, if you don't know, Murray's a young adult who's away at university who's a very good swimmer. And I knew Murray was swimming earlier than me on a Wednesday morning. Uh, and Murray and I thought we might trick Jen into thinking I'm a lot better at swimming uh, than I actually am. Uh, Here's some stats. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm not, I, uh, I won't uh, point out to you which is Murray and which is me. Um, but you'll notice, I don't know if you can see this, down the bottom, average SPM, strokes per minute, you'll notice that mine is exactly the same as Murray's. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, as far as swimming goes uh, in the pool, uh, Murray's the best, Jen and then me. Uh, Murray's a great swimmer and that is something to be celebrated. You can take those stats down now, thanks. Uh, I, forgot, I forgot to tell Murray to back it off just a little bit to make it more believable for Jen. She obviously didn't believe that that was, that was me and maybe he was backing it off, I, I don't know. <laughs> It's easy to measure greatness in the pool, isn't it? How many laps at, and at what speed? Uh, you know that famous Shakespeare quote, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness and, and others have greatness thrust upon them. I wonder if being great dominates any of your thinking. Great in the pool, great out there in the surf, great, a great academic, uh, great at your job, whatever it happens to be, a great parent. Um, the, the list could be quite long uh, and quite diverse. But what does greatness in God's family, God's kingdom, look like? Hey, someone might think, well, I, I'm great at my profession. Now how can I be great at this Christianity thing? We noticed in verse 1, as it was read, didn't we, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked that question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I guess like us, these early disciples have all kinds of ways of measuring greatness. But how do we work this out in the Christian community? Jesus' response is interesting, isn't it? It shows that our preoccupation with being great, well, it's just wrong. And he calls that little child to himself in verse 2. The child is there, they're standing around. It's an object lesson of, of some sorts. And he says in verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless you become like 
unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples' question is, who's the greatest in the kingdom? But Jesus' response shows that their very question indicates a barrier to them even being a part of the kingdom. J.C. Ryle says that they receive an answer well calculated to awaken them from their daydream. How great am I? Who's the greatest? An answer containing a truth that lies at the foundation of Christianity. Unless you change, unless you be converted, it could be read, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the question must be, what is it about these little children? It's not quite as it is in our context today where children are often entitled and encouraged to explore all of their hopes and dreams, uh, where kids are given every possible opportunity. Now, in their context, the child is weak, The child is small. The child is basically helpless, unimportant. Children are nothing, you know? They're overlooked, they're ignored, they're lowly. Unless you become like this, says Jesus, you won't even be a part of God's kingdom. It reminds me of that song that we sing sometimes, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the the cross I cling. Or, Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are who? The poor in spirit. They're blessed are those who mourn, those who recognize their their spiritual poverty, those who mourn over their sin. Because we, we, we might be tempted to come to God and say, look, God, look what I'm doing for you. I've given some money, more than that bloke. I've been a sacrificial servant. Look how great I'm going in comparison to others. But it was the lowly tax collector who went home justified before God, not the self-assured, high-achieving Pharisee but the one who cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if we're sticking in Matthew's gospel, we flip back to chapter 8. It was the Roman soldier who was described as having great faith. What did he say? He said to Jesus, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. And the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, the unclean outsider, an enemy of the Israelites, She was commended for her faith, the lowly, unclean outsider. And we're in chapter 18, and we just flick over the page to chapter 19, and we see people are bringing their children to Jesus that he might pray for them, as you might want him to do. But the disciples tell them off, send the little children away. As though what they're up to with Jesus is far too important for the children. But Jesus says, what does he say? Let the little children come. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's a huge shift in our thinking, isn't it? I want to be great. 
I really do. What can I do to be great? No. No. Recognize you are poor, needy, small. Recognize that you are not the center of the world. See verse 4? Therefore, says Jesus, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's this wonderful truth that just keeps on coming up in our Bibles. Uh, Humility. You see that you are well positioned if in relation to God you feel weak, inadequate and needy. If you think that you can just approach him in and of yourself, you're not well placed. This is one of the reasons why as a local church here at Bagara, we often say that we're an ordinary church, that we might be tempted to think that we're great. We might at times want to appear as though we're better than what we actually are. But we're little ones. And aside from Jesus, we're spiritually weak and needy. We're little ones who belong to the glorious Son of God. Now, I don't know if you ever go to those um, dinners, you know, the networking kind of dinners for your work or or, or whatever. Everyone's standing around doing small talk. Uh, Drinks and the canapes are are, are being served. And there's this funny dynamic that's going on in the room. You and I are having a conversation. But it's not this conversation that you're interested in. It's the one over there. And you've got your eye on the person over there and thinking, how can I get out of this conversation so I can talk to that person? Because that person over there might be able to further my cause. They might be useful to me. Useful with climbing the corporate ladder or whatever it might be. Uh, I've introduced myself to uh, a few people at these sorts of dinners, um, and sometimes they've been Christian dinners. Uh, and I remember one bloke uh, who just walked away. I introduced myself, and he just walked away. Uh, there's no gain in talking to this person. I imagine him thinking to himself, I'm out of here. Didn't even bother giving his name. You notice with me, Jesus changes the whole focus of this conversation, doesn't he? The disciples want to know, how can I be the greatest? Who is the greatest? But Jesus changes the conversation to caring for and about those who aren't what we might consider to be great. It's the habit of our world to serve the great, the popular, a desire to win an audience with whoever happens to be higher up the ladder, whoever can serve my purposes. But for God's people, the priority is to welcome the world's little ones. You see the privilege of this in verse 5? I'll read, and whoever welcomes one such child or little one in my name welcomes me. Just one little one welcomed in, we're receiving God himself to invite the little one in. There's nothing to be gained 
They won't help you in your pursuit for greatness. But, says Jesus, you're actually welcoming God himself. Just as our thinking needs to be reshaped to kingdom values, so so was the case to, to those early disciples. They get that Jesus is the Messiah. We've observed that in the weeks gone by, but the the shape of this this kingdom is different to anything we might have imagined. There's that privilege of welcoming the little one in. But see the warning in verse 6 and 7? Let me read. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. He's talking about leading others astray, isn't he? Leading others away from Jesus causing someone else to stumble in relation to Jesus. I reckon sometimes we can be really lacking in the the self-awareness department, living as though what we think and uh, say and do has no impact on those around us. But my sin impacts you, and your sin impacts me. There's the more extreme version of it, some dodgy teacher sprouting rubbish and wrecking the faith of some. And it's devastating, isn't it, when that, when that happens, when people buy a lie. But also, and perhaps a whole lot closer to home, there's the parent or the friend whose life just lacks integrity. I'm a disciple of Jesus, come the words... But the actions don't match up. And you have someone looking at at this so-called disciple thinking, what is this? It's confusing. And to this end, Jesus reminds his disciples to take the drastic approach with sin, to cut it out, to cut it off, to stop it. You see verse 8 and 9, we should just let this sink in, I reckon. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus is obviously using extreme language. We're not to cut our hands off. I don't know that that needs to be said. But this needs to sit heavy, doesn't it? I like what Doug O'Donnell says on this. He says, Christian, wake up, shape up, grow up your personal holiness really matters. Christian, be killing sin or it will be killing you and potentially killing others 
these little ones in the Lord. What we do privately with our hand or foot or eye, those private and personal parts, actually affects other believers. That's what Jesus is teaching here. How you see things, the eye, affects how others see. What you do, the hand, affects what others will do and how you walk will affect how others will walk. You see, we really do impact each other, don't we? For good and for bad. For good, when you take living for Jesus seriously, how that can impact our local church family. Well, we know that, don't we? When someone is serious about living for Jesus, we're encouraged, we're urged on. But for bad, when you don't, when I don't, the natural thing is to look down on the little one, you know, then brush them aside, the one the world looks over and flicks away. But you notice verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, says Jesus, that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Uh, this is a verse that's used to argue for the reality of guardian angels. I don't know about that. But these little ones, they seem weak and small and vulnerable. They are. We are. But if you're weak and small and vulnerable and your bodyguard is, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're relatively well-placed, aren't you? You're pretty valuable to have a bodyguard of that calibre. How much more must that be the case with these little ones being watched over by angels in heaven who see the very face of God the Father himself? These little ones are secure, are loved and safe. So we've got this passage that's helping us think about others. Instead of pursuing position and power and pride, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest, I daydream. No, we're to become lowly, poor, humble in our approach to God. And so we're to welcome other little ones in and to consider not what others can do for us, but how we impact them. And you get that bit at the end, uh, verse 12 to 14. What do you think, says Jesus? If a man owns a, a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 and, uh, on the hills and go for the, the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, says Jesus, he's happier about the one sheep. He's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And in verse 14, in the same way, he says, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. It's really quite amazing, isn't it, that that follows such a powerful warning about sin and the devastation that it can cause. How sin impacts others. How gracious 
that God pursues the one that wanders off. Maybe it's worth saying, perhaps that's you today. Perhaps that's been you. Maybe that's you right now. You you recognise that you need to humble yourself before the Lord. Cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and, and entrusting yourself to Jesus like a sheep. You've wandered away from him. And it could be a private thing. No one knows, but you've strayed. John 10 is sort of parallel to this, uh, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and, and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now we're in this broader section of Matthew's gospel that the first, the fourth part of it, where Jesus has been explicitly telling the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die dead and buried, and he will rise. The almighty, glorious Son of God humbles himself and welcome and cares for us little ones, even to that point of dying in our place. I, um, I remember uh, as a young adult, I would dream about being great. Uh, and the field would often change. Uh, I wanted to be great. Playing rugby for Australia, uh, that was not realistic. Um, I hadn't even played a game of rugby Uh, I wanted to be a great electrician, the best electrician. I I dreamt of greatness too in relation to God, that I might be used powerfully by God. But in that dream, I was the hero and not God. I was the centre of the action, not God. It's so easy to have this skewed thinking, isn't it? The the grand narrative, though, that we find ourselves a part of, uh, uh, that we find ourselves a part of in in the Bible, it's all about God. It's about Jesus who came to seek and save the lost and we're his little ones who need him. Our humility before God leads us to love the least in attitude and action. Being a little one, right relationship with God, right relationship with each other. Why don't we pray about that? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this afternoon, we pray that you would forgive us for wanting to be great for dreaming about how we are the greatest and for at times viewing the world in such a way that we are the centre of it. Lord, forgive us for this, we pray, and help us recognise that entry into your kingdom, it's about recognising our need for you. Lord, we thank you for your provision of Jesus, uh, that you sent your son into the world, that we might be forgiven through his death, 
that we might be adopted as your children, that you might apply this work to our hearts by your spirit. Lord, we praise you for it. And we pray that you would help us come back in as Jesus calls our voice. And we pray, Lord, that you would be bringing more and more wandering sheep back to Jesus. Lord God, help us care for the little ones, for those around us who might be overlooked and undervalued. And we pray that we would be shaped in our thinking and doing by you and your word and not by our world and its culture. Thank you that we are secure in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us together enjoy growing in him. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.